two essays. There's a writer that I enjoy very much, and I want to read to you two essays. It's already Hanukkah's approaching, and I very much want the guys prepared. It's extremely important to me that guys prepare in two ways for Hanukkah. I call it a three-part, but I'm going to tell you two nekudas that I want guys. I want guys to know the halachas. It's important to know what does Hashem want from us. The Rabbana gave us a mitzvah near Hanukkah to know the laws. And Be'ez Hashem, Rev Ezi will give a shear to the Olam on the laws. They should know what to do. Guys think they just do their, their intricacies to the halacha. First of all, to do the halacha well. And then to hear some of the hashkafas to the Chag. Now, when you learn values of the Yantiv, not everybody connects to everything. When you read on a Yantiv, Dovi, you'll hear ideas, find something that you connect to emotionally, something that the Chag means to you, and run with it, think about it. So you'll hear different ideas. Last night I spoke about the power of the individual. I would like to read to you an essay on the power of conviction. Sticking to something, believing in something, even when many don't see it your way. So, Benny, let me read you, read you this essay. What would the experts of 167 BCE have said about the chances of the old priest, Matisio, and his family and friends defeating the mighty army of the Syrian Greek Empire? I can see their pronouncements now. This is what they would write. In ultra Earth, this is like quoting the press would write about Matisio if the press, if the New York Times is around and Matisio is around, this would be an article. An ultra-Orthodox priest and his reactionary compatriots have raised the banner of revolt against not only the prevailing rule of the Seleucid Empire, but also against all of modern Greek culture and enlightenment. This motley band of guerrilla fighters is outnumbered more than four to one by the Seleucid army, which boasts some 40,000 professional troops equipped with the cutting edge of military technology, as well as the ultimate weapon, a herd of elephants trained for battle against which no warriors can stand. The Maccabees, as this reactionary rebel force is called, are opposed not only by the considerable Greek population on the coastal plain, but also by a large proportion of the Jewish inhabitants who have over the last century and a half adopted to the worldwide culture of Greek language and religion. Thus, the Maccabees have initiated a civil war targeted, as, targeted at their own progressive fellow Jews who are called Hellenists. As the Hellenists comprise the most wealthy and influential segments of Jewish society, the effort to unseat them is nothing less than preposterous. No, no chance. In short, the attempt of the Maccabees to score a military victory overthrow the progressive culture which dominates the whole world and reestablish their antiquated religion on the soil of Judea is futile. That's what any view of what the Maccabees were doing, any secular view would view it. The pundits. What are pundits, guys? It's the word of the day, pundits. Like people who predict. Pundits are people who predict things, they predict events. They could be true. I don't know if Badafka said not be true. But pundits are people who predict. Is that how you would say, right? They're, they're forecasters. Like you have a weather forecaster. A forecaster of events is called a pundit. Would that, would that be true? Somebody look up on the phone. Let's look on the phone. Maybe it's not exact. Could somebody get on their phone? So let's get a definition. I would say an expert. A pundit's probably like an expert. Could somebody get on their phone? Pundit. P-U-N-D-I-T-S. Pundit. 
Who is? An expert on a particular field that, data. that gives opin- opinions to the public. That's a pandit. It's a pandit. We need a pundit. Right. Pundit. A pundit is a person who offers to mass media his or her opinion or commentary in a particular subject area. An analyst, political analyst. That's called a pundit. So you could have a religious pundit, a sports pundit, a weather pundit. Okay. The pundits. The pundits would have been accurate in their in their analysis. After all. Who could have predicted that three years after issuing his rallying cry, follow me, all of you are for Hashem, Matasyo's followers would reconquer Yerushalayim, purify the Beis Hamikdash of its pagan desecrations, and reinstitute the temple service. Although the total victory was hard won, taking 26 years and costing the lives of four to five of Matasyo's son, the Maccabees ultimately triumphed over the Greeks. The prayer to Hashem we hear during the eight days of Hanukkah emphasizes the unlikelihood of the Jewish victory. You deliver the stronger to the hands of the weak, the many to the hands of the few. Hanukkah celebrates, listen to this, Eichelah, Hanukkah celebrates the victory of the unlikely, the improbable, the virtually impossible. It is the antithesis of the Greek worldview that adulates logic and the laws of nature as absolute. Greek speaks about the power of nature and logic. Hanukkah proves that in a world run by Hashem, miracles can happen. Of course, Judaism forbids relying on miracles. A Jew must always exert maximum effort according to reason to affect desired results. The Maccabees did not sit back and wait for a miracle to happen, but neither were they cowed by the odds nor discouraged by daunting prospects. The rule of thumb in Jewish history has always been that when we are threatened spiritually, as we were by the Greeks who wanted to exterminate our religion, we must fight back physically as the Maccabees did. And we are threatened physically, we are, as we are now by the Arabs, who want to eradicate us of every inch in the land of Israel. We must fight back spiritually. Fascinating rule. When we're attacked physically, we fight back spiritually. When we're attacked spiritually, we fight back physically. The spears of the Maccabees are the mitzvahs of today. Every time a Jew commits to keeping Shabbos, a terrorist bomb placed on Jerusalem street fails to detonate. Every time a Jew reaches out in friendship to a Jew of a different stripe, bullet shot at a car can a Jewish family miss their target. The God factor is completely predictable. As God promised over and over again in the Torah, if the Jewish people as a whole keep the mitzvahs of the Torah, both those pertaining to Hashem and those pertaining to our fellow human being, it will be good for us. If we don't, it won't. My cousin Phil accuses me of being passive. In truth, I am a spiritual warrior. I know that God will come through for Israel if I exert myself beyond my comfort zone to keep the mitzvahs that aren't easy for me. If I overcome my urge to take revenge against my obnoxious neighbor... I have launched a projectile powerful enough to bring down Iran's most deadly missiles, but my fellow Jews must do the same. The time has come to wage a spiritual war against our enemies. Every mitzvah is an infinitely more powerful weapon than anything Ahmadjan has in his arsenal. It doesn't matter how many kilos of uranium the Iranians are refining in their nephorous centrifuges, for those who tap into the God factor, miraculous salvation is never a far-fetched possibility. The Nekudu Rabbi say, that Hashem runs the world, the Nekuda that Hashem's a Kol Yachal is all-powerful, and the Nekuda of us doing our part, 
is all part of the Hanukkah story of a few people who stood up and did their part. I once said to the Olam, and I want you to hear this, what did Matis Yo say in his meeting? You know, I, I like coaching. For those that know me, I know I like coaching. And in coaching, there's X's and O's, and then there's the psych up. There are two parts, and they're... Ike, I want you to coach Ike. I want you to hear this. Write it down later. Put away the phone, because I want you to hear this well, Ike. There are two parts, Coach Ike, to coaching. And there are people that are good at one of these parts. You have to be good at both. There's the X's and O's and the psych up. The X's and O's are the strategy of the particular sport, whether it be baseball, basketball, football, the strategy and having a plan. That's the X's and O's and a coach has to have a plan. How are we going to beat those? How are we going to stop their running game? How are we going to stop their passing game? A strategy for the game. And a good coach has a good strategy. Then there's a whole other part is the psyche of the team, getting the players fired up. Getting them all to believe in each other. Getting them all to buy into the team. There's the psyche of the players. There are coaches that are great X and O's guys and terrible psych up people. Terrible at getting the team, winning over the team. There are coaches that are good at winning over the team but terrible X and O's. A great coach has both parts. So I want to know, Matisio has X's and O's. They're fighting the Greeks. He has a battle plan. And you better be certain. Matisio was the big tzaddik. He sat there and he said, how are we going to beat the Greeks? And he wrote up a a strategy, a battle plan. He studied warfare and he had a plan. But they're outnumbered in numbers that are ridiculous. What did he say to psych? Well, we can do this? No, we can't. What do you say if our school rabbis say would be playing this Sunday? We're, gonna, we're playing the Cowboys, us against the Cowboys. Alice. And and if we lose, we're, we, we, the school closes down. Chas v'shalom. There's nothing I say to the guy. We can do this. No, we can't. No, we can't. We can't do this. What is the psych of the Matisio said to? There's no belief in that we can't do this. Impossible. No. What is? It's impossible. It is impossible. It was impossible. There was no teva. Naturally, it's impossible. What did Matisio say? To me, if you were in, if you were a bug on the wall, what Matisio said to them is, we can't sit by. We're not sitting by when the disgracing Yiddishkeit. It's not a matter of we can or can't. We have to. It's not a question. If it's a question, we can do this. No, we can't. What he said to them is, we are not sitting by when Hashem is being attacked, the Yiddishkeit's being attacked. We're not sitting by. We can't sit by. There's no way. We might lose. It's true. B'derech HaTeva, we can't win this. But we can't sit by idly. We have no right. I am not sitting there when this happens. It was very similar to David HaMelech. This Goliath is a crazy warrior who's mocking the Jewish people and nobody can beat him. there is no, And he is just hurling insults at everybody and everybody's paralyzed. All of Kleisel's listening to this man just rip on Yiddishkeit and, but nobody can take him down. David HaMelech comes, is 17 years old. David HaMelech says, I am not sitting here when this guy's ripping. It's not a matter if I can or can't bring him down. I have to attack him. He's not, I'm just not listening to this. It's not a matter if I can or can't. It's a matter that I must. I must. That's what Matisio said to, his, to the Hevra in the meeting. Wasn't that we're going to do all the strategy we can because once we must, okay, so you go here, you go here, you run a fly pattern, you cut across them, whatever, we'll, we'll do whatever strategy. At the point we must do it, the conversation was, guys, this is something we must do and everybody bought into what we must do. It wasn't the question of can we or can't we. 
Memoz, we must. That was what that that was the question over here that we must do it. We're not sitting by. I, I just refuse. What Davin Amelov said, I refuse to sit by. He goes, could I beat him or not? I don't. I, I couldn't kill us. I just can't. I'm not sitting by. There's not what I'm doing. I'm not even questioning if I can or can't. I have to do something about it. And then he went at him. And then Hashem works miracles. But a person can have that sense a lot of times in your life, the sense of I must do something. It's not a question of can or can't Hashem. Hashem's call Yach do anything. And it's true, often we have Ein Saim Chalneis, you can't rely on a miracle. But at a time that we're ob obligated to do something about it, so we'll do every Ishtadlus we can. And Hashem's call Yach. That was the first essay that I wanted to read to But I want to read a second, I want to read a second essay to you. This this is a great this is a great essay. Mordechai, if you listen to this essay, it's a short one. There's the last essay I'll read to you, and then we'll get to something else. You saw the last essay for today. You saw, are you ready for another essay? You mind that I read? Yoni, do you mind? <coughs> Martha, are you ready? Eitan, listen to this. The LL security official at the LA airport. Rafael, listen to this. I can't wrap it, but listen, this is a good one. The El Al security official at the LA airport eyed my mother-in-law suspiciously. Mom couldn't imagine what the problem was. But the security official looked hard at her, studied her passport, looked up again at her face, gazed down at her passport, and finally called over his colleague. Up and down. Look at this woman, he said. Her passport says she's almost 90 years old. Can that be true? Like the LL official, I've always been perplexed by a mother-in-law Evelyn. Visiting Yerushalayim at the age of 88, she made daily pilgrimage, pilgrimage, can we say the word, to the West, she went daily trips to the Western Wall, trekking up 135 steps. Even when celebrating her 90th birthday, she still walked with a bounce in her stride. Even more mystifying is the universal popularity. Everyone she meets, no matter how distant from her age, geography, or background, adores Evelyn. This includes her young Persian neighbors, her nieces and nephews in distant cities, my Orthodox friends, her Hispanic plumber and his wife, the single 40-ish daughter of her best friend, and a young Israeli mother in Austin, Texas, who met Evelyn five years ago and continues to call her every Friday to wish her Shabbat Shalom. One Sunday, Evelyn didn't answer the phone we expected her to be home. I was at a graduation, she explained the next day. It was the son of this big Italian family. I was the only non-relative invited. What is the secret of my mother-in-law's universal popularity? Recently, at a class on the mitzvah of lighting Shabbos candles, I discovered the answer. Listen to this, Eichelot. Many Jewish women follow the custom of lighting one Shabbos candle for every member of the family, honoring not only Shabbos, but also the family members. Me'ikra din, guys, how many candles do you have to light for Shabbos? Two. One Pesach, one Shammar. There's a minig Yisrael, there exists a minig, to light for one per, per kid. That's a minig. The din is to light two candles. Many Jewish women follow this custom of lighting for every member. Honoring other people is a core value in Judaism. Ethics of the Fathers of us proclaims, let the honor of your student be as dear to you as your own. The honor of your friend like the honor of your rabbi, and the honor of your rabbi as much as the honor of heavens. As for marriage, the Talmud, the, 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 it says in Shas, 
A man should love his wife as much as he loves himself and honor her more than himself. How does one actually honor other people? The key is to validate their reality. Usually our own reality is so intrinsic to us that we dismiss other people's reality as insignificant, flawed, or warped. To take a step back and allow another's reality to prevail permits the other to feel his or her own importance. This is the essence of giving honor. And this is why everyone loves Evelyn. She honors those she meets and befriends by validating their reality. When she is with the family of her eldest son, Bob, who moved to San Francisco in the 1960s and joined the counterculture, she appreciates their lifestyle, the quaintness of their Mill Valley home with its hot tub, and her daughter-in-law's talents in making pottery and jewelry. When she's with the family of her second son, Leib Yaakov, in Yerushalayim, her husband, she embraces our religious ways and admires our choices. When her youngest son, Jamie, who heads a foundation for the arts, takes her to a formal dinner honoring Pavarotti, she enjoys the elegance of the event, hobnobs with the stars, and appreciates Jamie's kindness in bringing her. No wonder everyone adores her. Such validation requires much yielding one's own propensities and choices and poses a challenge to the ego. It would require a physicist to validate the reality of his teenage son who gets bad grades in science and who spends his evening strumming his guitar. It would require a wife who's an expert at multitasking to have patience for her husband who can't be left to both take care of the kids and remember to take the roast out of the oven on time. Validating, listen how we get to Hanukkah. Validating another's reality is the key to honoring others, which is the key to peace in the home and is the inner depth of the mitzvah of lighting Shabbos candles. But lighting Hanukkah candles is totally different. Listen to this. The Shabbos candles is what, guys? Shalom bayis. Which she's translating, Shalom Bayis, is the validating of another person. Hanukkah is the holiday of standing up boldly for your beliefs, of not yielding an inch. Hanukkah is the holiday of people who didn't give an inch. Not yielding an inch. The message of Hanukkah is, hold on to your religious convictions. Never submit to the assimilated majority, no matter how numerous or sophisticated they are. And fight for your ideals. So which is the Jewish value, to yield or to resist? You have the Ner Shabbos, which is Sholem Bayis, which is validating another to yield to another person. You have Hanukkah, which is the not budging, to not yield, Aiki. The salient difference in the light of Shabbos and the light of Hanukkah is their location. This is brilliant. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is brilliance. This is brilliant. Guys, you hear the question? There are two values. One is the yielding person of peace, Shalom Bayis, the Ner Shabbos. Validating another person, seeing their perspective, validating their perspective. I'll tell you a Misa that's a true story, that I love this story. I love this story. Listen to this funny story. My brother has a guy in his shul whose name is Abi. Abi's a very um, outspoken fellow, an older man who's very outspoken. Mark, you'll love this story, you'll laugh. Abi's a very, very outspoken guy. Listen to the story, Martha. I, I told you the story of Abi. Abi, this loud, outspoken guy, and a visiting rabbi comes to his shul, come to his neighborhood, and the rabbi's old, old friends with Abi. They've been friends like a hundred years ago. So the rabbi calls up Abi. Did I tell you the story, Akiva? 
will want to make, Akiva, you'll want to make a video out of this story. This is a f- true story. A.B. Is, an, is a very outspoken, like, blunt man. And a, an old rabbi, an old friend of his was coming to a city. And the rabbi asked A.B., I'm giving a lecture Friday night at a location that was far from A.B., but I have no friends there. Could you come near A.B.? And at least I'll have a familiar face at this speech. It was near A.B.'s community. Come to my speech on a Friday night lecture. I'm the visiting rabbi. And if you come, I'll have a familiar face there. So A.B. says, okay, rabbi, we're old friends, I'll do it. And A.B. walked the large distance that comes to the speech. In the middle of the speech, the visiting rabbi rips baseball. He rips baseball, wastes the time, fandom following a team, you're not even playing, do you really care if this Puerto Rican beats this, you know, this guy from Venezuela and one's called the New York. He rips baseball. So A.B. stands up, he's a loud guy, and he says to the rabbi, calling him his first name, old friend, for this you made me walk such difference, this is garbage. You're ripping baseball. You don't even know what baseball is. And I want you to know you're saying it's a waste of time. I am close to my dad. His dad had passed away. Me and my dad are close, and we became close through baseball. We went to games together, and it served. And my kids and I are close, and a lot of the bond we form by going to baseball games together. So this is nonsense. And the only reason you're saying it is because you've never gone to a baseball game. I challenge you, come with me to a game. So the rabbi's like, this is at a speech, like a guest lecture. He's like, oh. the whole place, my brother said, is like silent. Like, everybody, it's really uncomfortable. This guy stands up, like, ripping his old friend. So the rabbi was a very honest person. He said, A.B., it's a deal. I'll come with you to a game. Um, he was visiting a visiting rabbi from Israel. He says, a deal. I'll come with you to a game. So A.B. takes the rabbi to a New York Mets game. Thank you. He takes him to a Mets game. And at the Met game, he's explaining to the rabbi the whole game. To the rabbi, his stolen base was a crime. He explains, it's a, you know, the, how it works stolen base, a sacrifice, bunt. He's explaining, you know, he's explaining the whole game to him. And the rabbi's watching and studying and learning. He knows nothing. He's never been to a baseball game. And he's studying the whole game. And then, in the seventh inning, the Mets manager, the Mets manager comes out to take out the pitcher. And on the back of the Mets manager's uniform is the name Valentine. So this rabbi from Israel says, is that Bobby Valentine? So now the friend, the rabbi knows nothing about baseball. He says, is that Bobby Valentine? So the guy's like freaked. The AB's free. AB's like, how in the world do you know his first name? Bobby Valentine. How do you know his first name? So he said, I'm rather surprised myself. But he said, we, we grew up on the same block in Stamford. His rabbi grew up in Stamford. We're childhood friends. We studied together. We're good friends. So A.B. like, can't believe. He's friends with the Mets manager, Bobby Valentine. He knew his first name. So as Bobby Valentine's walking back to the dugout, they had very low seats. So as he walks out, A.B. hollers. He's a loud guy. He screams out, Bobby, I'm with your friend. And he screams out the friend's name. I'm with your friend. And Bobby like stares into the stands. And sees, like, stares at the guy for a couple of seconds. He's walking off the mound. He just walked to the dugout. And then he just stares and then goes into the dugout. In the middle of the eighth inning, this rabbi gets a, the rabbi gets a message from a security guard comes up and said, Bobby Valentine wants to see you after the game. He said I should bring you to the dugout. He leaves A.B. and he brings him into the dugout to meet with, after the game, he brings him in to sit with Bobby Valentine. A.B. wanted to know, did you meet Mike Piazza? What, you know, he, 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 I don't know Mike Pizza. I don't know. I just know me and, me and Bobby caught up. 
But the, it's obviously like, it's a Maisa Shahaya, exactly. My brother spoke to Abi about the story. It's exactly as it happened. To me, what was the Ashkach Hashem? He met a childhood friend. So it's not a normal, that's Hashem runs the world, is the lesson to the rabbi. I don't know if the rabbi learned the lesson. My brother heard the story from his friend Abi. My brother lives in, this, in that community. And it's exactly as it happened. What's amazing to me is the lesson to the, the rabbi was wrong to come to a city and rip everything they do is wrong. And he himself went to a baseball game and met a childhood friend that I'm sure you appreciate me. Now, I'm not saying baseball's good, bad, but the sense of coming to a city and knocking, A.B.'s right. You don't come to a city and just like knock everything they are. There's validation. There's validation to appreciate what they are. <clears throat> to appreciate. To validate and appreciate. I'll be honest, I spoke horribly to the parents on Sunday. I regret my speech. It's on tape now. I regret the speech, and I'll tell you why. I spoke about a topic that I think needs chizuk. A topic that needs chizuk. And I spoke about covered. It's extremely important. I was wrong. Parents are amazing people. They're lovely. Their children's awesome. I should have first spoken about appreciating parents and connecting. I was wrong not to. I was flustered, and I will make up a different time. That sense of coming into a place, first understand. Seek to understand before you seek to be understood. First understand before you try to be understood. When you want to, I want to tell somebody something. I once told a Rebbe, a Rebbe told me the guys aren't interested in me. So I asked him, one of his Talmudim, what his favorite baseball team is. He said, I don't know. So I said, you're not interested in them. Of course I'm interested in you. If you don't care about them, why would they care about you? Seek to understand before you seek to be understood. This visiting person should have first found out about baseball before he tried to sell his ruchness he was selling. Comes, it's ridiculous you watch. You don't even know what they're doing. Now, if you understand it, if you understand it, okay, now you can talk. You understand it. Now, certainly, you want to give over things that are valuable. Don't come and rip in a city you don't know. This man's telling you that he connected to his father. What do you say now? It's a very interesting thing. He said, I became close to my father through this something. Now you want to sell spiritual values, excellent. And then a person has to create priorities, excellent. But to first understand before you strive to be understood. You hear that rule, Ike? So now, we have Shalom Bayis, which is all about understanding, yielding. And yeah, there's going to be brilliant what she says. So we have opposing values. We have a value of understanding. Really trying to understand. This visiting rub should have said, what, is, what are you guys into? Oh, that's so interesting. What are you into? A guy told me now, a yid called me up literally two weeks ago. He's teaching an extremely modern school. The kids don't give one hoot about everything, anything he's teaching. He called me up. I had gone to California about, how long did I go to California? Yeah, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago? So I went about three weeks ago. After I went, a Rebbe called me up from there. And he said to me, I've been following He's an extremely sincere guy. And he said, I want to know that my guys just don't give a hoot. They don't give a hoot about all these. He had stayed late when I spoke, and then he called me up. They don't give a hoot. I'm telling Yiddish Kaidim, from Kaidim, they don't, they don't really care about. And I told him, find out what they do care and learn about it. 
There's not, don't have the sense, whatever they're just on the phones. What are they on their phones with? Find out about it. Seek to understand. There's not nothing and stupidity. What are they into? Right, Sun and Shine is the master of this. It's not a trick. He's a curious guy. If he had a group of guys, his whole shear was on their phones, he'd want to know what are they looking at. He'd real, and he'd want to be taught about it. What are the things you're in? And there's stuff, it's not all garbage. Just have a sense, ah, it's all stuff. They're probably interesting things. He would seek to understand. When you seek to understand, then, then people are interested. What do you have to offer? What are you trying to say? What are you adding? If this visiting rough comes to a city, rips the all the baseball stupidity. A Rebbe says to the guy, baseball, shmeshball, what do you care about? Derek Fleeter. No, what, what are you into? What tempts you? What interests you? And then you give over other values. You understand, then you'll be understood. So the aside of Shalom Bayes, he said, she says her mother-in-law, Evelyn, is loved everywhere she validates. She appreciates people and where they're coming from. Then you have Aiki, the other side of the coin, Hanukkah, not budging an inch. Stubbornness, sticking up for the truths. So when do you say what? There's like contradictory values. Listen to this. The salient difference in the lights of Shabbos and the lights of Hanukkah is their location. I love this. Shabbos candles are always lit inside the home. Hanukkah candles should ideally be lit outside by the entrance of the house. This is how we do it in Yerushalayim. They light it outside. Only when the Jews were exiled to the diaspora did safety dictate moving the Hanukkah lights inside. But even there, they're usually kindled in a window. They can be seen from the outside. The mitzvah of lighting the Hanukkah candles to publicize the miracle of the oil. While the Shabbos candles illuminate the private domain of the home, the Hanukkah candles are a statement to the public domain. Yoni, listen to this. This is great. Similarly, the place for yielding is in the home, within the family. The place for standing up for one's conviction is the public realm. Unfortunately, we often reverse the two. A Jewish college student is afraid to stand up to his politically correct friends and defend Israel, refuses to yield to his mother's entreaties to wear a tie to his grandparents' anniversary party. A Jewish woman who sits mutely during coffee break while her co-workers joke about cheap Jews, finds her tongue and argues vociferously when her husband declines to buy a piece of furniture he considers unnecessarily. The place to stand up for your beliefs is the public realm. In the home, yield, yield, yield. If you are chronically tardy, which means late, and your spouse likes to arrive early everywhere, 15 minutes early, yield. Ask yourself, what is his or her reality and validate it. If you are a spendthrift and your spouse is frugal, a spendthrift who spends a lot, frugal is your cheap. That's a good word of the day, frugal. If you are a spendthrift, you spend a lot, and your spouse is frugal, yield. Ask yourself, what is his or her reality, and validate it. If your idea of a vacation is a five-star hotel, and your children want a vacation in the national parks, ask yourself, what is their reality, and validate it. Then decide what is best for the whole family. But in the public realm, when Judaism, Jews, or Israel are under attack, stand up and fight. That's the lesson of Hanukkah. I thought that's brilliant. That the Ner Shabbos within the home, that's the Ner of yielding. The Ner Hanukkah is towards the street in the public domain. That's the place of unflinching, standing up for your beliefs, not budging, not yielding. But I always like the sugi of balance. 
I always love the sugi of balance because all greatness is balance. So more important than the answer to me, I don't need an answer to the contradiction. I love this point that she's making on the two parts, the Ner Shabbos and the Ner Hanukkah. The Ner Shabbos of validation and the Ner Hanukkah of a person standing up, not budging an inch. The great people have both parts to them. They have a side that's unbending when it comes time for the truth and there's a time to call upon that need of standing up for what's true and there's a time for understanding and validation. I love this, I love this idea, I see this part to a person. To have both aspects to us. You meet a person who's very bending and very liberal, but doesn't have that side to themselves of standing up, doesn't have the Hanukkah side, I'm unimpressed. I'm unimpressed, that's just a liberal person. I'm impressed with balance. A person who has that aspect of Hanukkah, this is true, this is right, we're standing up, we'll fight for what's right. But at the time that calls for it, validating understanding. David, what do you say to these two values? Maskim? Both things are hard to acquire, to really come out of yourself to see another's, way, another's viewpoint. As you get older, it becomes, you, it comes out more and more as you see your children. Your children grow up in a, in, in a, in a different age than you, you grew up and with different realities and learning to understand those realities, to validate and really get that perspective. I, I speak, I've spoken in the past that you learn more from your students than anybody. If you're really open to see another's reality, that statement could start being true. If you're really open to, to really learn another's reality, not just to say, yeah, whatever you're into, stupidity. If you have a group of Talmidim on the phone, what are they looking at? There's, there's a story, one of the great Mechanchem over the last many, many years, Ramendel Kaplan, there's a book written on him. He was a brilliant Mechanich. And he came, he was a European Yid, and he came to America, and the Bachram, like, there was, they couldn't relate to him. There was no, there was a tremendous schism, a tremendous gap between him and the Bachram. And this, and Reb Mendel Kaplan started reading the newspaper, the sports, the politics, to try to understand the Bachram. And then he had, like, he, he really, like, learned their world in an intelligent way and learned from their world. And then they all wanted to learn from his world, and he was a massive impact. You will never be understood if you don't understand. You hear that rule? From anybody in this world, you will never be understood if you don't understand. If you don't understand that person's reality, they will never understand your reality. That's a part that's essential. The balance, the counter to that is on the truth, standing up for the truth, which is Hanukkah is all about. She spoke about the balance to that, Mita. Rabbi Said Shiurim, it's it's twelve ten. Let's get I want it twelve fifteen. The Gemara Shiurim are picking up. So let's be consistent. Twelve fifteen will be the Gemara Shiurim.